Okay, that's enough. Sit down. You guys are doing that too much. Other people are annoyed that you just keep talking. <laughs> no, I'm glad you guys are doing that. Um, hey, first thing, can I invite our ushers to uh, come forward um, and take our normal tithes and offering for, for Timberline family? Thanks for being faithful, you guys, to this. Thanks for giving regularly and um, not, not to Timberline, as, as, as we always say, but really through Timberline, impacting locally and around the world. So thanks so much for your faithfulness in that way. We're in a, we're in a series, four-week series. This is week two, looking at the, the Old Testament, so, something that can kind of be a little challenging. Um, it, it was neat, Pastor or, uh, uh, Dr. Jim Lindsay was with us last week, and, and really coming from, a, from an academic uh, background came to us and, and really laid out a lot of groundwork that, that was so helpful to kind of get us oriented to what is the Old Testament, what are the books that, that make it up, these, these themes that, that run throughout it of covenant, and we'll, we'll uh, come back to those as we go here over these next few weeks. But this week, um, a few days ago, I sent an email around to our church staff, just everyone on our church staff, and I said, hey, think about the Old Testament. And I said, like, what, what do you think are the most... Uh, prominent, the most troubling, the most pressing, whatever you'd say, the most important questions that, that, that people have when it comes to, Christians have specifically, when it comes to the Old Testament. And I would say about, I, I got, I, I don't know, I would guess maybe 30 different responses, and about 90% of them all centered around this, this kind of idea with language like, I guess I struggle to really understand that the God of the Old Testament seems to be uh, so full of wrath so angry, uh, this, this uh, violence that seems to sort of track with this God. And, 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 and I guess I just struggle with understanding how, to, like, how does that cohere with you know, the New Testament and, and, and Jesus and just trying to make sense of that. Let me read for you a passage that, that can kind of sum up and, and get us to this problem maybe faster than anything else. This is from the Bible, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 20, and I'm going to read verses 16 to 18. We read this. This is a command from God to the nation of Israel as, as they are going into the promised land, and uh, God has given them the land, and he's telling them to drive out the current inhabitants, and this is the language that God uses to them. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's the restrictions that he's giving. You shall leave alive, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. And then he gives the different groups that would make up the, the Canaanite people generally, about seven different people groups. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. The reason being, so that they may not teach you to do according to their, all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would not sin against the Lord your God. Now, if you know anything about like the new atheists, these are uh, thinkers, philosophers, writers, uh, sociologists for, for, from different backgrounds that have kind of made up a, a, a new group of, of atheists that are making trying to make popular uh, inroads into culture. And this is one of the biggest places that, that uh, groups like the New Atheists will really go after is this idea that, um, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so violent and wrathful and angry. Surely you, as an enlightened 21st century Westerner, could not accept 
this kind of a God, you can't make sense of it with, in light of this reality that, uh, at least that you claim, that, that Jesus lays down a reality of love and turn the other cheek and that sort of thing. But I would say this isn't just a problem for the new atheist. I would suggest if we were honest in this room, probably any thoughtful Christian has, has come to these places and, and kind of squirmed, you know, kind of gone like, ugh, I, ugh, I, don't, I don't like this, or like, how do I make sense of this, or this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't get it. In fact, th- this difficulty has led Christians throughout history to kind of go in some kind of weird directions in light of trying to make sense of this. Some of the early church fathers, we call them, these would be the people who are followers of Jesus in the first few centuries of the early church. Um, some of them, uh, one example would be a, uh, a teacher from Alexandria, North Africa, named Oregon. Um, Oregon uh, believed that really the uh, if you look at the Old Testament, he said, well, I'm just going to kind of interpret everything I see there in light of the New Testament. And so everything's kind of like a type. Everything's a shadow. Um, it's an allegory. And so, and so you might go to actual historical events like um, Israelites crossing the Jordan River, okay, as they're going in Jordan. And he goes, well, that's just a symbol for baptism. That's just Christian baptism. So it's, it's, a, it's a picture. It's a symbol. It's a story. It's a metaphor. But it's not real. We don't, we don't really need to wrestle with it. And so they went the sort of allegorical approach to, to reading these accounts. And you had some who went even further. Uh, Jim Lindsay last week mentioned a guy by the name of Marcion. Marcion is a guy who in the 2nd century A.D., about 100 years after Christ's ministry here, he, a um, very wealthy guy, uh, he, he fell under the teachings of, of some Gnostics, a certain kind of school, Greek school of thought, and um, Marcion believed this idea that really the God of the Old Testament is an actually a different, a whole different God from the God of Jesus in the New Testament that he talks about. Because he said, you know, the, the God of the Old Testament, he's completely unknowable. He, he's, he's sheer justice. He's full of wrath. He is the author of evil. Um, he's only concerned with one people group, the Jews. He doesn't give a rip about anyone else. And it's this sort of ethnic-centric picture of God, and, and, and he's this evil being. And then he said, but the God that, that Jesus communicates is a, is a different God. This Jesus is, is purely a God of love. He is a God of, uh, who, who is gracious to all, not just the Hebrew people, but, but to all people. And this led him to, as you could imagine, obviously discard the whole Old Testament altogether. But then even when he got to the New Testament, there were books that kind of smacked of Judaism, you know, had that flavor. And so he got rid of Matthew, because that, gosh, that starts with a genealogy, for goodness sakes, a Hebrew genealogy, that can't be there. And, and he got rid of um, the Acts and the Gospel of Mark. He got rid of the book of Hebrews, First uh, and Second Timothy. He got rid of Titus. He was only left with sort of a butchered version of Luke and a handful of Paul's writings. And he goes, ah, there we go. That I like. It doesn't say anything I don't like. <laughs> Fortunately, the church realized this, uh, that, that they couldn't throw out the Old Testament. It was suicide. It was suicide in the sense that without the Old Testament... The New Testament, and this is what I'm going to propose during these next few weeks in this whole series, the New Testament does not make sense without the Old Testament. 
And so this insistence by the, by the church that, hey, Old Testament, New Testament, you guys, this is one story. It's one coherent story. I think the fact that the church came down on that, like, underscores at least two important things for us. Number one, it underscored this idea that, that, that Christians have to reconcile both the wrath of God, the idea of justice, punishing evil, okay, not, not winking at it, not being okay with it, not turning ahead, being just, and the love, the compassion, the faithfulness of God, reconciling these two elements. Because you see, love that never faces the demands of justice, it's not Christian love. And second point that I would say that it was underscored is this, this belief that within history, meaning a particular place and a particular time in history, God himself got involved in the affairs in, a, in an actual way in the affairs of human people. And that it's the same God who started the story, the same God who created, who, who spoke, who, who had his hands in the dirt at the beginning in Genesis, dirt under his fingernails, so to speak, is the same God who is completing the story, the same God who in Christ entered his world. It's, it's the same God, the same picture. And so, and so tonight what I want to look at, if you have your outlines, um, you can fill in, there aren't, aren't, aren't blanks there, but if you want to kind of follow along where we're going, I want to ask this question. Is the God of the Old Testament a moral monster? Like, is he guilty of atrocities that, that, that we really just say, you know, there really isn't any justification for what was going on? This language of a moral monster is some language that is used by actual current critics today of this God revealed in Scripture. So, is the God of the Bible a, a moral monster? Now, before we jump into that, let's look at something we have to look at. And that's kind of the context of, and this is in your outline there, God calling Abraham, we call that the Abrahamic covenant, and this idea of, does he only care about Abraham? Or is, does he really care like universally? Does he have this concern for the whole world? Now, I would suggest that there is no more important place in the Old Testament um, when it comes to making a connection between old and new than when God called Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram. I'll just call him Abraham. His name gets changed later. He comes to Abraham, and there's this moment, and, and we're going to look at this in a little more detail here next week, but he, this is this moment where he calls Abraham. He says, leave your people, and that's kind of this thing where like, he, he sets Abraham apart from all the rest of humanity and, and, and kind of makes like a like favored nation status out of him and all his descendants. Of course, he doesn't have any descendants yet. That's one of the problems that Abraham's kind of got questions over his head too because he's going, a nation, that's a problem. There's just me and my elderly wife. So what do you, what do you mean by that? But, but he selects Abraham at this moment and sets him apart to become the, what, what we know as the Hebrew people or the Jewish people. And so God promises in Genesis 12, he promises, number one, to make him a great nation. And he says, I promise to give you a great name. And then, and then there's this, also this other kind of really cool thing here. He says, well, well, he goes, first he says, you know, you're special, you're unique, most favored nation status kind of thing. He, he says, like, everyone who blesses you, I'm going to bless. And the inverse of that is true. Everyone who's against you, I'm against. So there's this most favored nation status that, that, that's really unique and it seems kind of really narrow. But also within this passage... 
Speaking of the unique role of Abraham's family that he'll play, um, there's also this equally huge promise for everyone on the outside of it. Verse 3 of chapter 12, listen to this. He says, And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. See, even somehow, now that, what does that mean? How does that? Because he's, he's, he's saying, you're going to be a unique family, but this thing that I'm doing with you, it's actually going to be the most wonderful thing that will ever happen to all the other families that are out there. Somehow this unique thing that he's doing with, um, with Israel, with the Hebrew people, is, is also going to somehow concern the foreigners, those who will one day, when the Mosaic Law, Moses comes further and they get the law, they get the Ten Commandments and all this, and, and they're in a Mosaic Covenant. Everyone who's outside of that, you know, the Gentiles, most of us, somehow he has them in mind. It's not a, I've forgotten about you sort of thing. Here's a good example. Fast forward hundreds of years into the future, into Israel's history. Israel, by this point, has, has foreign powers that are now stronger than them. And man, they're in the midst of fighting. All this junk is going on. And, and, and there's this, this one Hebrew prophet named Jonah. We know him as you know, Jonah and this giant fish, this account. And, and God calls Jonah, a prophet, Hebrew prophet, to go to Nineveh, the Gentiles, the pagans. Now, Nineveh had, had done hideous atrocities. We have stone reliefs, pictures of what they had actually done to the Hebrews. Awful things, so much so that there was, there was a deep-seated hatred for these people. But he said, Jonah, I want you to go to them, and I want you to tell them that because of their violence, because of their wickedness, because of their evil, because of what they've done, I'm going to judge them. I'm going I'm to wipe them out. And there's this odd thing first, because Jonah doesn't want to do it. We know the story. He kind of runs away. He takes a couple attempts at running. He finally gives in, and he goes to them. Jonah preaches the message. God's going to wipe you out because of your evil, your injustice. You have broken these sort of uh, natural law understandings of what is good and just and right. And surprisingly, Nineveh repents. Even the king himself. A sackcloth and ashes, feast, food and water for animal and, 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 and people. Everyone does it. And, and Jonah is ticked off. Like, he's so angry at God. And when he's asked, why are you angry? He goes, I'll tell you why I'm angry. And he refers back to something that God said to Moses when he gave the law, when he, he said the whole you know, special people thing, you're going to be unique and enter unique covenant. He said, I'm angry because remember when you said the special people, here's what you said, Exodus 34. Speaking of himself, he said, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for, for thousands or two thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He said, I know you're... He was ticked that God was going to be consistent with his character, basically. He said, I know if people repent, I know what you do, and I don't want them to repent because I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them to be wiped out. They're rotten, and they were. The prophet Ezekiel, this, this is what God said to him, Ezekiel chapter 18 God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? It's a rhetorical question, declares the Lord God. Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. And a few chapters later, Ezekiel 33, he reiterates this fact again. And this is all in the context of judgment, wickedness, 
evil human atrocities, God comes and judges but then says this. He couches it in this. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And then almost in a plea, almost a begging, he finishes off, God says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? This is a picture of God pleading, of like begging, of getting on his knees and saying, why do you insist in this direction? It's almost like the language of the prodigal son. He's saying, come to yourself. Figure this out. Please, don't go this route. Return to the Father's house. God clearly has a special covenant love with his people Israel, but it is never at the expense of the foreigners, of the Canaanites, of the Amorites, of the Hittites, of the Jebusites. It's, it's never at the expense of the non-Jew or the non-Hebrew. So now with all this in mind, if this is, if this is accurate, this is a picture that's painting, let's get to the problem. Um, God, God's command to wipe out the Canaanites, that's the question. How do, how do we make sense of that? So here's a couple of questions, and I just put this in question format in your outline there that I kind of walk through. I want to walk through some of these points. And the first one there is, was God rash? Was he quick to judge? Was he one of these, you know what I mean? Like someone, you know like someone with the short fuse? Like, do you ever get there? I get, like, I get there after a long day with all four of my kids, and my wife has, like, been gone all day, and I've, and I've had them all. And it's like, I mean, anything just makes me go off the handle. I'm, like, super short-fused. Um, not exactly a lot of patience. Is, is, is this kind of God's nature? Like, is he like that? Does he just kind of fly off the handle? Is he capricious? Does he seem to just, man, he's so angry. It's like his shoes are on too tight. He got up on the wrong side of the bed. Whatever. But is this, is this what's going on here? Is he rash and quick to judge? Really interesting. Um, the passage that we looked at earlier when, when God called Abraham. In Genesis 15, God's kind of still working on this whole thing. I'm, I'm calling you. It's a special thing and it's, and it's unique. And he kind of gives Abraham like a window or a picture into the future history. He goes, let me, let me tell you how, this, how, how some of this is going to work out. Because you're, you're going to be dead when it comes. So let me just kind of give you a small picture of what this most favored nation status is going to look like for you and all your descendants. And in Genesis 15, 13, he says this really interesting thing. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved... Okay, now he's talking about Egypt. He's not telling, we know this is this side of history. He's talking about Israel's time in Egypt where they will be enslaved and oppressed for uh, oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You won't, you won't be there. You'll be dead by then. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. But listen to this. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet reached its limit. Isn't that interesting? The iniquity, the sin, the wickedness of the Amorite, this is one of the Canaanite groups, has not yet reached its limit. Now, God's telling Abraham that he is willing to let his most favored nation's people wait for like 430 years about to, to languish in slavery um, 
because the Amorites, one of the groups making up the Canaanites, has not yet got to this place where they're like unredeemable, where they're like unfixable, where no one will respond, where, where no one will repent, where their ears are completely deaf, where their hearts are completely callous. And it's not just that they, it's that they won't and they can't repent at that point. It's like God pulls back the curtains a little bit and, and he lets us know that apparently there's some point of no return for the human soul. Which is sobering, isn't it? I mean, because we don't know what that is. God says, I know, I know the heart perfectly. He says, you don't know, you can't even know your heart. But apparently, God clues us in on, there's a line at which once your soul goes past it, it's simply because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't commit celestial rape. I don't attack your soul. But you can't respond because you've, 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 you've shut yourself off completely. Now, he doesn't tell us what that line is. But he says it's there. And he says, I know it. And we remember that even so, God tells us that in the midst of all this, he goes, I don't remember, I don't take any delight in the destruction of the wicked. I don't take any delight in a heart that turns itself off so bad, that runs so far from me, that says my will be done, and not God's will be done, that in the end I actually give it to him, and it's the worst hell imaginable. He says, I don't, I don't take delight in that. I beg, I beg them to turn from that picture. Second Peter is a letter that one of Jesus's, one of his three most closest uh, disciples and apprentices, the apostle Peter, wrote, and he 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 put these words down, and he writes in the context of people say, ah, God's not doing anything. The world's gone on as it has. Nothing changes. Nothing's going to come to an end. God's not going to wrap it up. It's just cycle and circle. Peter writes, verse eight: Do not ignore this one fact, my dear friends, that the Lord one day, that, I'm sorry, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some think of slowness, it's because he's patient, he says, with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The picture we see consistently in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this God who will not force anyone but he, he compels them, he begs them, because he knows a life without them is destruction. It's evil, and there's a point at which the soul crosses that it simply becomes irredeemable. The second question under this is, was God's judgment a form of genocide? Now, now genocide, you know, we think of the word genes, you know, genetic. Genocide, or was it a form of ethnic cleansing? Was God trying to wipe out sort of a people group. You know, I like this people group, but I don't like that one. Of course, if he created them all, why would he not like one people group and, you know, not another? So this is, this is a good question. Is what's going on here genocide or ethnic cleansing? Richard Dawkins, who, who, who is one of the uh, kind of new atheist voices that are out there, suggests that, that this, what we're looking at tonight, the killing of the Canaanites, um, was an act of ethnic cleansing in which, to use his exact language, Quote, bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with xenophobic relish, um, basically out of hatred for, for non-Israelites, these acts are carried out. So F, ethnic cleansing is, is basically fueled, fueled by racial hatred. See, in ethnic cleansing, one group kind of uh, pronounces a condemnation um, and really says another group is kind of unworthy of having life, 
and then, and then they carry out uh, attempts to destroy that group. They proceed with attempting to destroy them. Does this fit what we see going on here as this part of Israel's history and specifically the interactions with, with the Canaanites? I would say no, and for a couple of reasons. Now remember, from the beginning, God told Abraham, okay, this is how it's all starting out, all families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring, Genesis 12, 3. Okay, not exactly a very xenophobic start, at least to begin with, right? there. We, we don't see a lot of, it doesn't smack of, of sort of ethnic, ethnocentric racism in any way. But think, think about the many foreigners in even this very book and the chapters that, that followed. Abraham met and honored Melchizedek. Uh, gave him a great amount of money of this offering, uh, revered him. He was, not, he was not a Hebrew, not a Jew. He encountered just and fair-minded leaders among the Egyptians, Genesis 12, and Philistines, Genesis 20. And in fact, these guys are even seen in the text to be more honorable and more honest than Abraham is by the author of the text. Joseph, who is the guy who ends up, you know, saving, you know, he's the guy who kind of becomes in charge of all of, all of Egypt and he ends up saving all of the people. Um, Joseph married an Egyptian woman uh, who gave birth to Manasseh and Ephraim in Genesis 41. At, at the Exodus, when all the Israelites leave Egyptian slavery, we're told that with them left a, a mixed multitude Exodus 12 tells us, along with Israel, a, a mixed multitude, they took other ethnic groups with them. Numbers 12 tells us that Moses married a dark-skinned Ethiopian, is the language used in the text. Uh, a Gentile that probably you're more familiar with, if you know the Old Testament stories, Rahab and her whole family joined Israel's ranks in Joshua 6. Um, and of course, in the very next chapter, she's contrasted with an Israelite named Achan, who stole from Jericho and ends up being put to death. She's the good guy and she's the foreigner. Achan's the Hebrew Israelite and he's the bad guy. There don't seem to be really any overtones of ethnocentric, xenophobic, racial hatred anywhere in these accounts. The only concern that is brought up is foreign gods. If a person steps away from those foreign gods, it has nothing to do with nationality, has nothing to do with ethnicity, ethnicity. It has to do with who they worship, and we'll see why that is so important and such a big deal here in just a minute. The Israelites further are repeatedly, like time and time again, commanded by God to show concern and look out for the welfare of non-Israelites. More than that, they're told to actually, and it uses the word love. You shall love the foreigner who lives in your land. Um, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 10, it says, The aliens and sojourners in your midst. Let me read a couple words from Leviticus 19. Listen to this. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. Now, these are not little green men. You get that, right? These are aliens means foreigners. Just want to be sure we're all on the same page. Um, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. And listen to this. You shall love the alien as yourself. Boy, I wonder where Jesus got that idea of love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. For, and this is the reason why. He goes, this is why you had better do it. For, you were aliens in the land of Egypt. That's number one reason. Number two reason, he says, because I am the Lord your God. See, God tells Israel, you know what it's like to be oppressed. 
You know what it's like to be a foreigner. You know what it's like to be a slave. You're aware. See, it's not the idea of you were oppressed and now you come to power and so now you take it out on everyone. I mean, where do you think Nelson Mandela got the idea? Gets out of prison, he finally has the ability to pay everyone back and does he? He says forgiveness. Well, that's not an ancient idea except for this text. Only this nation who served this God, Yahweh, had some kind of crazy idea like that. Once you get to power, you don't oppress the people who were oppressing you previously. In the New Testament, remember Jesus says, um, what you have seen me do, go and do likewise. This is in the context he washes his disciples' feet, these sort of just bunch of jerks who are all trying to kind of put themselves up and you know pecking order and who's more important and he does this manual thing he says what what you've seen me do do likewise very different picture but see the biggest reason why i would say this is certainly not this sort of ethnocentric racist thing biggest reason that it's not genocide or ethnically based is because this exact same judgment guess who it fell on later it fell on Israel later. This exact same judgment fell on them. See, those who were in the land, whether it's Canaanites or Israelites, were only tenants. They were never, never owners. Psalm 24, Psalm 50 says that. They were never owners of the land. They were only tenants. See, Really interesting, when Israel was given the law, and you ever, you ever like start reading through the Old Testament and you get the book of Leviticus, and it's like law code, I mean, it's like picking up some legalese book, and it's just, it's thick, and you're kind of going like, oh man, there's tons of detail in there, and it's just, in this case, that, and in this case, you know, that. It's, it's extremely detailed. In the midst of this Leviticus text, okay, giving the law, it's, it's law application, here's how to carry it out, and here's what to do. Leviticus chapter 18, um, in the midst of all of this, Listen, listen to what's said about how they are to live, and it speaks of the group who was there before them. Because remember, they've got the land, but the land's tied to under the Mosaic law. Are you going to be faithful? And Leviticus 18.24 says this. He's just, he's just brought up, um, uh, mentioned like bestiality, incest, homosexuality, uh, child sacrifice, um, all these sorts of just a gamut of different things. And he says, do not defile yourself in any of these ways, but for, uh, for by all of these practices, the nation I am casting out before you, that's the Canaanites, um, have defiled themselves. Thus the land became defiled, and I punished it for its iniquity. And there's this really interesting language. This is kind of gross for us, but this was, it was, he was picking up on the, sort of the most violent bodily reaction, and he said, this is what the land is going to do to people who live there who do this. The land will vomit out its inhabitants, speaking of the Canaanites. But you, Israel, you shall keep my statutes and my ordinances and commit none of these abominations, either the citizen or the alien. doesn't matter if it's you or anyone living in this area um, among you. For the, inhabitant, for the inhabitants of the land who were before you committed all of these abominations and the land became defiled. Otherwise, and here's the warning, the land will vomit you out for defiling it as it vomited out the nation who was before you. Now, what's really interesting, you go forward in time, the year 722, Assyria, pagan nation, God allows them to come in and wipe out the northern part of Israel. 
And all these prophets are telling them why. They tell them it's coming, sort of like Jonah to the pagan nations, but it was their own prophets to their own nation and going, we're going to be judged, we're going to be judged, we're going to be judged. And they don't do what Nineveh did. They just go, ah, you know, whatever. 722, Assyria comes in and wipes them out and just carries them off. And then a few years later, 586, Babylon, the next great nation, comes in and the little group that was left that was remaining due to the southern portion comes in and, and, and takes them, most of them off. And this period from 722 to 586 is called the Great Dispersion. Sounds like vomiting. <laughs> They're dispersed, vomited over the world. They're not allowed to be there because of how they lived. Remember Jesus' word in the book of words in the book of Revelation? You'll probably remember these. Remember this, and you know, we quote this, we love this phrase, I stand at the door and knock. Right? If anyone hears me and opens the door, he says, I'll come in and I'll eat with him and, and he with me. And we, we see pictures of this, of you know, God knocking on the heart of a person. Now the application, the context is, he's speaking to a community, a congregation. But you know what's really interesting? The language that comes right before, because it's a plea. It's getting on the knees begging. It's that please, please, please thing. You know what comes right before this in context to the church at Laodicea? This language right here. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. It's the same picture. It's a call to turn away. This is given to the church. A particular church, a church in Turkey. The church of Laodicea. Exact same language. And this is... Apparently the same God. This is Jesus, meek and mild, humble, kind, loving Jesus. And yet he says, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, turn from this. Or you will be vomited out with the same language. See, here's what I would suggest. The big claim that, you know, genocide, that's what's going on, it's so wrong. I wouldn't say it's genocide. You know what I think it is? I think it's genocide. It's not destroying a particular ethnic group. That would be ridiculous. God made all the people. He knew, he knew how things would go, the different family lines. Why would he hate a particular ethnic group? That's not it at all. That's not even close to it in Scripture. It's sinocide. It's the idea that he must, he says, because he is a just God, because he is a good God, he must eradicate sin because sin destroys human flourishing. And it doesn't matter if it's found in the Canaanite. It doesn't matter if it's found in the Hebrew. It's a universal problem. And because he is a consistent God, he will universally judge it. He is, in that sense, just. He doesn't show most favored nation status to anyone when it comes to sin. He can't do it, and he says he won't. And that gets us to the next point. What is the purpose of his judgment? It's because sin is a cancer. It's a moral cancer. It's a spiritual cancer in our world. It's a spiritual cancer in our lives. And the great physician says, I have to cut it out. See, here's the reality. Human beings, this is, this is what I think Scripture tells us. Human beings are like a mirror to whatever we worship. Whatever you think is ultimate, whatever you think is sort of the greatest ultimate thing, you, you, will, you will reflect that in some way. Remember Bob Dylan's language? What does he say? You've got to... I know, I know none of you listen to secular music, but just pretend you, you've, got to, you've got to serve somebody, right? See, that's true. I think Bob Dylan's right. But there's more than that. 
you also have to, and you will, reflect what you serve. Whatever it is that you worship, whatever you think that is ultimate, whatever you spend the majority of your time doing, whatever is absolutely honored in your life, you will, at the end of the day, look like that thing. See, the Canaanite gods, specifically uh, Baal, is a, is a fertility god. He's a fertility god. And so Baal and his consort, Anath, were gods that, that were absolutely consumed with sexuality. Sexuality is closely tied with the fertility of the land. And so if you worship a god like that, you end up mimicking that god. You, you imitate that god. And so the worship ceremonies in their cultic worship involved temple prostitution. It involved, I need to try to arouse my god, whatever his deal is, whatever his hot button is, I'll do that, and I'll get his excitement, his energy, and then he'll start, he'll start mimicking me, and then we'll get rain. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes. Similarly, the god who was his uh, goddess, I should say, who was his, his consort, Anath, was, uh, was this sort of bloodthirsty god. She was the god of war. You might think of the, the, the goddess Kali, the Hindu goddess. This goddess, Anath, the Canaanite god, is oftentimes depicted drinking her victim's blood surrounded by, by corpses and, and, and having almost on a necklace of sorts different skulls around her neck. There's a late archaeologist by the name of William Albright. He describes this Canaanite uh, deity, Anath's, th- this massacre in this sort of gory scene. The blood was so deep that she waded up to it in her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads. Above her, human hands flew like locusts. In her sinuous delight, she decorated herself with suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her joy at the butchery is described in ever more sadistic language. Quote, her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. Afterwards, she was satisfied. She washed her hands in human gore before proceeding on to this. Other. Is it any wonder... You go to the Old Testament and you see God saying, um, I want you to eat your food like this. I want you to wear your hair like that. I, want, I, I don't want you to mix threads. I don't want you to do... Is it any wonder that God set up all of these ar- almost arbitrary barriers because he didn't want them looking like taking on Canaanite worldview and Canaanite lifestyle? Is it any wonder that, that he didn't want them taking their little infant children and sacrificing them. This is, this is what they would oftentimes do, is the, the god Baal would be seen as this uh, idol, metal idol, and a fire would be lit under his hands. His hands would be glowing hot, burning, and they would take their little infants and come up and put the infant on this giant pair of hot, burning hands and watch it fry. These are the things described... These are the reasons why, why God said the land will vomit you out. In Israel, if you go that route, it'll vomit you out as well. So here's the question. Is God just? <laughs> well, we look at his character. That's what we do, and that's what we tried to do tonight. Do a survey of what is the character of God? What is he like? Does he allow some people to get away with things and others not? Is he like a judge who takes bribes, or is he consistent? Is he just? in that way. What kind of God is he? And it boils down really to one question. Here's the question. Does God have the right to take life? Now, I have a hard... If God is 
the definition of God that we all take to be the greatest possible being who is the creator, the originator of all things. Does he have the, if he gave life, does he have the right to take life? It's a question of authority. Or do I have some sort of a demand on him to extend my life or someone else's? That's a hard question to answer no to. Right? Does God have the right to take life? I think so. I don't know how I can answer. I don't like maybe that he does something. It doesn't fit my preferences is what I mean. But I can't say he doesn't have the right or the authority to take life. So here's the last question. Can God be trusted? Um, the new atheists, again, level this charge probably as much as anything. Um, the world is unjust. It's wicked. It's cruel. It's broken. It's evil. Therefore, there cannot be this kind of an all-powerful, all-loving God who is the standard of goodness. C.S. Lewis said, as he recounts his own life, he was an atheist growing up for many, many years. It wasn't until he was in his uh, later life that, that, that in his study and reflection and conversations with others, gave his life over to Christ. And he said, you know what's weird? As I look back, I realized that the, the biggest thing that I had against God is that he allowed evil and wickedness and destruction. And I, and I thought there can't be a God because of all the evil. He said, but then it hit me one day, where had I gotten this idea of right? Because I'm saying God wasn't right. God was wrong. God was bad. Where had I gotten the idea of good from? Because you, know, you have to have a ruler to know if something's straight. Where had I gotten this idea? Because I said there's no, there's no moral lawgiver. There's no God. And the way I know is he doesn't measure up to the moral law. That's universal. It's not just my preference. Wait a second. That doesn't make sense. I'm trading on ideas that... I can only use if there really is a God. So our, 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 our recoiling, our revulsion to, to evil and brokenness in the world, I would suggest only makes sense if there's a transcendent, personal, all-powerful, immaterial, loving God who is holy. Remember the words to Moses? after giving the Ten Commandments, the words that bugged the snot out of Jonah, that he's like, doggone it. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, keeps loving kindness for, for thousands, forgives iniquity, forgives transgression, forgives sin, and yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. See, you guys, I am so glad that God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But I'm also really troubled that, that he can't leave the guilty un, unpunished. Because, see, the problem is there are parts of my heart that are still deeply, deeply broken by iniquity and transgression and sin. And unless I can somehow be separated from those things, I'm going to be judged because that's me. And I can't figure out a way to get separated from them unless, unless, what if this God's, what's the description? Compassion, grace, abounding love, kindness, committed faithfulness. What if this God who was described like this, those things actually led him to take the punishment himself? What if it actually led him to jump in front of the bullet, to let the sword drop on him? And knowing that, that we will reflect whatever we worship, is it any wonder 
why God seeks to save a world from, from deep brokenness and sin at great cost to himself and says to Israel, you know what he says to them so often? Be holy as I am holy because you're going to reflect what you worship. Make sure you've got the right thing because there's different ways to live. You can reflect me. You're made in my image. You're made to reflect me. All truth, all goodness, all beauty, that's me. Do you want to reflect truth, goodness, and beauty? Be holy as I'm holy. Mimic your life after this. Follow my statutes, my ways. The book of Proverbs, Psalms is constantly saying, love his, his Torah, his law. Why? Because that's a reflection of the one who is the ground of truth, goodness, and beauty. And why Jesus said, again, as we saw earlier, what you've seen me do, do likewise. He's putting himself in that place. Most importantly, though, though, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. See, the Old Testament gives me a picture of a God who will, who will journey centuries with stubborn people. He will journey millennia with dumb, idiotic, stubborn, selfish, mean, backbiting, gossiping people, hateful, broken people. He will go forever with these people at great cost to himself. He will allow his name to be absolutely dragged through the mud by these people. He will allow himself to be let down, to be betrayed by these people, only to keep on pursuing. To never stop. You guys, that's the God of the Old Testament. And that's the God of the New Testament. That's Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight feels kind of heavy. We, we turn our attention to something that is, again, if, if, if all of us are honest, this, this is troubling to us. These are, this doesn't solve all of the questions we have. It doesn't give us rational answers for, for every single thing that, that we still encounter. But it, it creates a picture of a God, may, maybe kind of new for some of us. Maybe for the first time we're seeing a God who doesn't meet our preferences, but he meets our needs. And Lord, I pray that as, as we glimpse pictures of, of who you are, of how you have revealed yourself, most importantly, the person of your son, Jesus, God, that we would take up our cross and follow that kind of a God. Lord, would you propel us into the lives that we're going to walk out of this room and walk right back into with the realization that we reflect we reflect a God who serves, who's, who's not concerned about his reputation, but he's concerned about setting the world to right. He's concerned about dealing with the deep brokenness and the sin and the rebellion in our own hearts. And so, God, would you live through us in that way, empower us as we go out now. I pray for marriages, Lord, that, that, that need that Holy Spirit power to overrun some of the brokenness that just keeps messing and tripping things up. Lord, for hurt, for, 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 for unforgiveness. God, would, would we reflect a God who has been radically betrayed by his people that he gave all to and still withholds nothing and gives 100% of himself? Would we live in that way? In maybe relationships where, where we need to give forgiveness, ask for it, God, we want to be people of the kingdom. We want to be people that look like Jesus. 
And so we put, we put your son on the highest level, the throne. We adore him. We worship him. Change us into him, not outwardly conforming, but inwardly transforming. God, that's our prayer. We love you so much. Thank you for tonight, for family, which is what we are. We worship you. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys, thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, our prayer team is going to be up front. If we can pray for you about anything, we'd love to do that. Hang out, go get your kids, bring them back, eat some of the snacks, and we'll see you guys this weekend. And we'll see you guys this weekend. And we'll see you guys this weekend.